1: Hello, everyone. This is Divine Jaino, and you are listening to the New Books in African Studies podcast. Joining me today is Dr. Paul Birk, currently assistant professor of history at Texas Tech University, and author of *Building a Peaceful Nation: Julius Nyerere and the Establishment of Sovereignty in Tanzania, 1960 to 1964*, published by the University of Rochester Press. Hello, Professor Birk. How are you?
0: Hi. Thank, thank you. you. Uh, I'm doing well.
1: Good. Well, welcome to the podcast. Um, I wonder if you would uh, begin by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Um, okay. Well, um, my name is Paul Bjork. Uh, I'm, I grew up in Minnesota. Um, and at some point uh, after college, I decided to volunteer with the Lutheran Church. Uh, that was we had a the Lutheran the Saint Paul Lutheran Synod had a partnership with a a synod in Tanzania, and they were trying to develop some kind of partnerships out of that. And one of the pieces of the partnership was uh, the first private university in Tanzania. Um, there had been other government universities, but the first private university uh, was, was going to be this one. And this was an idea of the Tanzanian bishop in that region, and he had kind of made friends with some uh, old uh, Minnesotan types, and uh, they decided they they could do this together. Um, so, uh, being I had kind of heard about this project ongoing as I was in college and so forth. And when I finished college, I decided I'd volunteer for that. And um, so I spent three years working at uh, what was then Tumaini University in Aringa, Tanzania, and I taught uh, kind of like uh, freshman comp, which they called. Communication skills there uh, for law and journalism students mainly, and a couple other classes, and uh, and that was a great experience because I was a part of a community, I was a part of an institution um, that was a Tanzanian institution by and large, and uh, and I learned Swahili while I was there, and I got to travel around a good bit within a few months of getting there. Um, uh, there were we were reading headlines of all these. Uh, Congolese refugees flowing into Tanzania. Um, and I, and I had been working a bit with the journalism students because I had a vehicle and they needed to get to town sometimes to do some reporting for their practicum. And uh, so I was kind of working with them and, and kind of taking them into town and trying to develop some ideas for a school newspaper and some different things, which other faculty were also working on. And so I said, You know, this looks like news. <laughs> this is, we we should get out here and check this out. This is, this is big time. And, uh, you know, it was kind of a, it just sort of worked out. I mean, it's not that I was all that experienced, but I kind of asked around a little bit and people said, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, and, uh, and that had, you know, I, I got together some of the students and said, here's my idea of what we could do. And, and there, there was one older, there were a couple of older students there who had already worked in, in some of the different Tanzanian kind of government, your bureaucracies and so forth and uh and one of those students was, he was a great fellow, and he just goes, uh, if you do that, I'll be the first one to, to, to join up, to volunteer. And I said, well, that's great. So we got a good group <laughs> of students, and um, and including some, I mean, a lot of these students already had some journalism experience. That's how they got into the college. They'd already been working as uh, kind of freelance journalists. And so these were a good group of students. And uh, we got, a, we raised a little bit of money. We made some connections through some of the people who worked at the university to get a place to stay and so forth, and you know. So we got in, we got on some buses and we got on some trains and we made our way out to the refugee camps and spent three days touring in the refugee camps and talking to people and doing some reporting and uh, and came back and uh, that was a that was just a great introduction to the kind of bigger picture of Tanzania and you know I, what was interesting there is just you know I, I got a sense of. The scope of you know how big Tanzania is, how big it feels when you're traveling across it by a slow-moving train or or vehicles on muddy roads and so forth, and and but you also get a sense of of just the bigger regional picture. And you know, I remember one of the things that one of the camp uh, administrators told us when we were kind of introducing ourselves uh, when we arrived, saying refugees in Tanzania are as old as our independence. Hmm. In other words, this is a place Tanzania has been stable. Tanzania has had the capacity to receive and deal with refugees. And you can you can argue a lot about, OK, should refugees be incorporated into the local population? Should they be kept in camps? Should they be militarized? Should they, you know, there's lots of kind of policy questions. But Tanzania has actually dealt with those policy questions in a variety of different ways. Uh, which are creative, some of which are fairly creative. I mean, some of the refugees did become incorporated into local communities and basically become Tanzanian. Some stayed in the camps, and many of them stayed in the camps by choice, and Tanzania finally in recent years gave them a choice. Look, either you become citizen of Tanzania, or you go home to Burundi, in this case. And, And, you know, so they had to make that choice, but Tanzania was not necessarily saying you can't be citizen, but this was kind of the way the international community dealt with the problem of People fleeing conflict. The problem of stateless people is that we have this category of people called refugees, and we met some refugees. Uh, you know, and so we got a sense of just you know how Tanzania relates to these to the bigger region, to the conflicts in the bigger region. I learned at that point a little bit more about the inside story of of the Great Lakes conflicts and so forth, and so that was just like one piece of of a number of different. Um, kind of journalistic expeditions that introduced me to, uh, to a sense of Tanzania and the sense of an African country, with all the problems of African countries, dealing with those problems in some creative ways, and, uh, you know, and, and establishing a functioning government. It has problems, like all governments do, but it functions in, in some significant and, I think, important ways. And so you know, in a variety of ways, you know, through that experience of spending three years there teaching, but also kind of traveling around and and just kind of getting a sense of what's happening in Tanzania and and feeling, to some extent, as a a part of the bigger community, as a part of you know, as as an observer of the bigger scene, and in some ways a participant. So that was a great experience. And so um, during that time, I kind of decided that as far as I could tell, I couldn't find um, a whole lot of, you know, just, like, books about Julius Nyerere, the first president of Tanzania, who died while I was there. And I saw him, actually, a couple times. He came out to Aringa on a couple occasions. Um, you know, and, and it was... It was kind of impressive. I mean, here's a guy who was... had retired from politics, which is in and it of itself sort of unusual in that part of Africa. Um, but he had... Lived out the rest of his life as a kind of elder statesman in Tanzania, uh, had been involved in lots of international type stuff, including a uh, peace negotiation over uh, for Burundi, trying to prevent the kind of uh, conflict that had blown up in Rwanda, um, and which I found out later he had been predicting for a long time. Um, But here he is. he's, He's an old man. And as we later learned, very sick with leukemia by this time in January, 1999 and March, 1999. But he came all the way out for the, uh, the inauguration of a monument to a guy called Chief Mkwawa, who was a, uh, an old chief, uh, from the pre-colonial times who had fought against the Germans and defeated a German force on at least one major occasion. Um, anyway, he had died out there, and, and someone who I knew in Oringa, one of the people who was working on building the university, um, had been contracted to build this uh, monument for Chief Nkwawa. And for the inauguration, uh, Nereri came out, uh, and a lot of people – so we just kind of – I heard about it because my journalism students, and other people heard about it different ways. And so there was kind of a convoy of people, um, you know, r- odds and ends of vehicles, all going out to this very isolated site, which was near one of the uh, – national parks in Tanzania I mean it's way out in the middle of the wilderness no one's out there and so everyone's kind of driving out there because that's where this thing is going to happen and I was with a bunch of my journalism students and so forth and um and uh so we got all the way out there and we're and and people kind of have gathered and both people who have driven in and then a whole bunch of like Maasai people who just kind of live out there you know pastoralists who kind of uh, live in these very rural isolated areas and so it's just a kind of a weird, odd gathering of people um, in, you know, some dressed in Western styles, some dressed very much in local styles, um, traditional styles. And they're all out there. And you, already, uh, you know, sort of uh, says a few words at the site where there's a gravestone and, and a tower as a kind of a you know, monument built in. And then we all drive back to what had been the old capital of Mkwawa's capital, um, which is now a village. And Yurari gave a speech there. <laughs> In the meantime, I had picked up a, a, a pickup truck full of Maasai women who wanted to ride back to the town. And so this was just kind of like being a part of, you know, a Tanzanian political, little local political event. And Yurari gave a speech, um, which I, I didn't really understand at the time. My Swahili wasn't very good still. Um, but the speech was about, We got. A re- I got a recording of it, and the speech was about, um, you know, back in the old days, the weapons of Nkwawa were spears and uh, arrows, and they didn't work very well because the Germans had machine guns and cannons, and in fact, there's a hill near there called Tosemaganga, which means in the local language, throwing stones, because apparently the Germans had once upon a time set up a cannon up there, and we're throwing stones on the hey capital. Um, and Nurei said, look, there's always going to be someone's going to have a bigger gun than you do. This, these are not. This is not how you're going to win battles in the 21st century. In the 21st century, you're going to win influence. You're going to succeed based on education. And so then he's right back to his a, a theme that he's preached about for you know his whole life that education is the key to power and so forth. And so he gives you know a humorous and and uh, you know biting speech on education. And the thing is, there's no reason why he has to be out there, right? I mean, he's an old retired politician. This is not going to accomplish anything for him. He's doing this because this is what he's always done. He's doing this because, in the end, he does care about this country, its people, and their progress and and, and their success. And uh, you know, and so we can, you know, as I, you know, so as, as I went on, I learned more about area. I learned the kind of influence he had, the way people talked about him. I learned a little bit more about the people who blamed him for tremendous economic problems and so forth in Tanzania and blamed him. I learned a little bit more about the extent to which Tanzania was a kind of a police state uh, in the 1970s. Um, and you know and I, I learned all about that, but you know I got a sense of this person and the presence he had in this country, and, and I kind of figured, look, I've learned the language, I have some connections, I kind of know my way around. Um, if there's not a biography of area, then maybe I can do that. Um, that would, seems like a worthwhile thing to do. So I kind of made that decision that I would do that before I left uh, in 2001. Um, you know, I later learned that, you know, applying for a PhD program said, well, biography, people don't really do biographies as an academic project. Um, and I can see why. You know, biography is a certain type of a more of a literary. Uh, product that doesn't quite serve the purposes that professional historians want. I think they're still a very useful thing, but they serve a very different purpose. So I didn't necessarily do a biography, but my project still was to figure out what Nyerere did, how he you know, what he did, what his government did, and and how Tanzania seemed to have a different trajectory than um, other neighboring countries. Now that's a very complex question. There's a million reasons why there might be a different Trajectory in one country than another that have to do with structural reasons, have to do with the way ethnic groups and class groups are divided and and the way they fit in. It has to do with regional politics and regional conflicts and all kinds of different things. But nonetheless, it seemed like a worthwhile question. And so that was kind of the question I went into um, when I started a PhD program at the University of Wisconsin. And that was a great place to do that, as you well know lots of people doing Africa stuff, lots of insight into Africa. And, uh, you know, I learned about both history, politics, uh, literary studies and all of that kind of combined to give me the tools to approach doing some sort of a project on your area. So, I mean, in regards to this project, I guess that's a little bit about me. Um, yeah, well, and
1: that's that's helpful because it, um, sort of takes us in a way, um, through the introduction, uh, to the book where, and the the introduction ends with what the book isn't right, which is a biography or, um, evaluation of Nyerere, um, himself. Um, so that's really, that's really helpful to, for you to frame it, um, in terms of your personal, uh, involvement in Tanzania, uh, over a period of, of several, of several years, um, I wonder. I wonder if you would sort of tell us a bit, um, a bit more about um, actually the um, the education of Nietzsche, which uh, which is, I think, a nice follow up to uh, telling us a bit about your own education. Because chapter one um, does begin um, with sort of talking about his time in Edinburgh in Scotland, um, and as well as the influence of of uh, John Stuart Mill's. Um, Thought and I guess more broadly um, British utilitarianism on on the development of his political philosophy. And I wonder if you could say a bit more about that.
0: Okay, well, yeah. And so, as you can see, I mean, inevitably I did get sort of, I was was attracted to the biographical story in some ways and and still am. And in fact, I am working on a little uh, short biography of him right now. But, you know, I don't know that I'll ever write the big biography. That may be the task for someone else. Um, but I, I did look into biographical questions to some extent, and I thought it, at least, you know, to some, it, it is useful to have a sense of who this person is in the same way that, you know, a political system, especially uh, these political systems that are being established, do focus in kind of intensely on the person of a first president, you know, in the way that we do with Washington or whatever else, or the, the quote unquote, the founding fathers and that crowd, um, and the fact that in, in Africa, that first president did have significant influence. I mean, just because lacking, I mean, when you have a new polity, you have a new thing created, the institutions themselves are sort of still tied to colonialism. Um, you know, and, and people are not necessarily all that happy with those institutions. Um, and yet, those are the institutions that you're going to have to use to kind of create. a a nation state that conforms to what nation states are Uh, you know and at the same time you can't necessarily build this new thing out of you know whatever might have been remaining of quote unquote traditional or pre-colonial political uh, structures in fact New was very aware of the dangers uh, potential dangers of doing that because those those polities or those authorities did not conform to the bigger nation state and potentially where it could be divisive. You know, so there was a big focus in, in terms of the way people thought about what this thing is that they now belong to, the new nation state of Tanganyika and then Tanzania. You know, to some extent that was identified with the person. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and that can go lots of different directions. I mean I think some people did build a cult of personality in part because it was imposed on them and that they were identified with the nation. And that's part of the problem that they can never, many of them don't seem to be able to escape, right? Okay. Is that the nation and their person are inseparable, not only in other people's eyes, but to some extent in their own eyes, right? They, they they become, it becomes a kind of a part of their whole concept of self is is the bigger thing. And it makes it hard for them to separate from it. Um, and so I think these pressures were there. And so I think it is worthwhile at least having some sense of newary's character in some sense of the way he might've been making decisions. And so I think, but it's also looking at his education in some ways, his education is representative of other people of his generation. He wasn't the only one who went to England or abroad for some education of his generation and certainly more followed. <clears throat> um, you know, so uh, he, he, but I think he was the first uh, of person of at least of African descent from Tanganyika to get a master's degree from uh, from the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. um, so you know he had uh, kind of come up as as a he was he was a, a son, one of many sons of the fourth or fifth wife of a minor chief in a minor, you know, a very isolated part. There, there was nothing in particular about his biography that stood out as here's someone who should become a future leader. Right. Um, he really he didn't emerge as a leader in large part because of, you know, for uh, his 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 character, his intelligence, his uh, you know, his his leadership qualities um, that were recognized by teachers and by others who, who met him as he was growing up. So he got the chance to go to school and got some schooling and, and, and emerged on some of the regional of the exams at the time which were administered by the British. Um, and uh, eventually made his way to uh, Macquarie University, uh, which was the major uh, institute of higher education in the region at that time, also run by the British. (coughs) And um, so there he encountered uh, John Stuart Mill, which was, I think, a a major philosophical influence on British colonialism, in part because he rationalized that... uh, you know, that uh, generally people uh, should make decisions through their own kind of individual liberty and that they should get together and discuss things, and that, you know, democracy in some ways grows out of um, uh, or has a relationship to the way Mills would see individual liberty and so forth. But he would also say that for those uh, peoples of this world who are uh, not at that st- quote, kind of stage of development, there, he has a kind of more ethnocentric view, which is to say that, well, the best that they can have is a, uh, a Charlemagne, right. <laughs> you know, in other words, a kind of a king, you know, and so that, that was, I think that, that, was, that was a philosophy that, that uh, in the book, it doesn't go into that much detail, it's something that got cut out of the book, but I have kind of some more material showing that this was a major influence on, the, on kind of the ideas about British colonialism. <laughs> Um, and so he picks up that and, and he picks up kind of the language of that. He also seems to have picked up a bit of Marx. Um, this would have been, he would have been there in the middle of world war two. And I suppose, uh, Marx uh, would have been, uh, well, a, li- a bit more, uh, well received in those days because of the alliance, uh, with the Soviet union and so forth and whatever all else. And, and just that you know, Europe itself was a bit more socialist back then. Right. And, uh, And there were many people who were convinced by socialism. So he encountered that and it would seem that uh, he wrote a letter to uh, the Tanganyika Standard, the newspaper, um, saying that a future independent African society will probably be built on Marxist principles because Africans, in his mind, were naturally socialistic. (laughs) So, So that's an idea that... He came to very early in his uh, in his kind of educational career, and when he was still in his twenties, um, you know, doing a first degree at uh, at Macquarie. So he, he's he's absorbing a lot of ideas um, that that are you know that are far beyond the you know his local upbringing. And he, he had a lot of understanding of his local upbringing. he, he was the son of a minor chief. He herded cattle and and you know did uh, this you know the kind of things you would do if you're a young person in a rural part of uh, you know East Africa back then. So he's he's very much this is Frederick Cooper has kind of pointing out that a lot of these guys that that come to be leaders in these new nations see themselves as taking the best of the their local culture and the best of European kind of uh, intellectual culture and trying to combine them to create something new um, as to envision for Africa. So. Uh, Nurey had would appear some pretty probing conversations with a local a priest, a Catholic priest, an Irish guy. I think he was based in his hometown, um, and and it would seem shared a lot of his ideas. I mean, they shared clearly. They shared some ideas about um, the role of the family and the extended family in uh, African society, and they were kind of just developing ideas out of that. And I, I think some of that, this guy's writings, um, uh, Father Richard, Richard Walsh, and I think some of your writings, there's some clear parallels that I think are, uh, are evidence of these conversations. So he went off to Edinburgh for three years and uh, got a uh, master's degree. Now, he was supposed to go there for a degree in biology and sciences because he was a teacher, uh, that's what he had been trained as, and he was already teaching at, uh, at one of the schools. But he got there, and uh, he said to uh, the administrators that uh, a good friend of mine who knows me very well, and I'm not sure if he's talking about one of his former teachers or his father, Richard Walsh, but someone had said, for me to do uh, science is like trying to do sculpture with a pen. <laughs> it's the like, right. sort of wrong, wrong wrong tool wrong for the job. For yeah, for the job, right. And, uh, and so he wanted to do arts. Uh, and at first, apparently Edinburgh was resistant to that because they had recruited him for something else. But he pretty quickly figured out how to game that system and got himself into doing uh, some politics and economics classes. And there's a certain irony because he actually uh, wound up not taking a class in, uh, I want to say, maybe American... History or something uh, because he because it clashed with a class on economics. And he said he he wanted to get a sense of how economics works in the world. Now, most people, you know, kind of say he was a great politician, but he was a lousy economist. You know, and so, but he did take the time to try and learn something about economics okay. and he was still attracted by Marx. And so maybe, you know, some would argue that's to blame. But there, I mean, that's a whole other story for much, much later that has to do with, you know, structural uh, inequalities in the global economy and so forth, yeah. of which he was a great critic. But he, you know, so he, he just he, had, he absorbed a very good education and he brought that with him then back to uh, home and uh, I think he was already clearly thinking about being a politician. He had already had some conversations about that with um, a former teacher and uh, but didn't necessarily rush right into it He, he kind of went home and and uh, there were already some other people in the country kind of there was already some politics going on. there were some other activities going on uh, based on uh, an organization called the Tanganyikan African association and they had already been kind of looking at trying to re, uh, get a new vision for what they're doing and not just be a kind of social club for civil servants, African civil servants, but rather be a real kind of lobbying organization that is going to push for more African voice in politics and potentially independence. And And when Uri came back, he did get involved in helping to rewrite the constitution of that organization uh, to point towards, to become the Tanganyakan African National Union. And the the word nation in there was very much pointing towards the intent uh, to lobby for independence. I don't know. so, uh, So, I mean, I think that education is an important piece of understanding your area and understanding what emerges as some of his philosophical and, and policy initiatives, right. um, which he, he's a, he, he, he grows into a very good politician. And to what extent that's just kind of an innate talent that someone has to what extent, that that's something that he kind of grew into because of certain influences and because of just the nature of the tasks that he found himself, uh, uh, you know, employed in, Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to say, but, you know, clearly he then starts to construct some ideas and, and he constructs them very, very creatively. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so maybe this is jumping ahead, but eventually he, you know, he, he puts together this philosophy of Ujama, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: um, which is a word derived from one Swahili word for family. It's actually rooted in an Arabic word for family or association. Um, but he doesn't invent this word he in fact he's he's already kind of a lot of his philosophical ideas are already in place about <clears throat> that you know that he, we're having to figure out a way to move people from thinking in terms of very personalized politics of uh, of clans of extended families of chiefdoms of of the district commissioner for that matter of, of, of the, you know, British, but a very personalized use of politics and try to think in more institutional terms. And he's, he's working out these ideas. He's working out how, how to think about the future, uh, a future state and how it's politics should be. Um, should there be freehold land tenure? Should land be uh, uh, owned by the state? And he's debating this and, and there may be some cultural roots to that question. Lots of different questions. Um, you know, and then when he comes out with Ujama and, and is saying, well, if Africans are naturally in families, and families should, are kind of socialistic, and I mean this is not a naive rhetorical strategy, right? This is something that does derive from fairly extensive reading that he's been doing on international politics, on economics, on um, and to some extent on anthropological views of uh of African politics. And uh, you know, so he's He's a well-educated person, and, and and maybe this is a good lesson. I mean, a well-educated person does have a breadth of, of, of view that serves him well, I think, as a politician, and I think has served generally has served Tanzania well as well. I mean, again, um, it, what to make of the influence of socialism and the effects of socialism on the Tanzanian economy is really a, a, a separate question that that we don't want to quite get into here. Yeah. But anyway, so maybe that's a little bit about his education and that that's a key. That is something important to think about and thinking about the choices he makes in terms of his role in structuring uh, a new Tanzanian state and a Tanzanian nation.
1: Right. Well, and, and so, yeah, you, you, you did in fact jump ahead a little bit um, because uh, chapter four is, it deals, um, chapter four is titled the invention of Ujamaa and it, it deals um uh, with uh, this this idea of, of a national um, ethic that you um, that you assert makes you know discursive sense at both the grassroots and uh, and cosmopolitan um, uh, registers. So um, and that actually ties into. You know, going way back, I guess to the to, to your introduction, um, and, it, and I wonder if you would say a bit more about this. I think you you have in some ways, but wonder if you would expand upon the notion that um, a fundamental tactic in establishing Tanzanian sovereignty was the manipulation of discourse. That's something that you say um, in the in the introduction and is a is a theme that's carried um, throughout the book. Okay. Yeah.
0: So yeah, I mean that. Yeah, that's very much. You know, and this is kind of the technical historian part of the book is, and, and I, I tried not to be too heavy, you know, with theory and so forth. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, but I, I kind of came at some point to realize that it seems like a major, I a, mean, a, a, the, the project that your is engaged in the project in many ways that I would say all the you know, leaders of these post-colonial countries, these countries transitioning from being a colony to being something else you know what? They're a big part of their task is just establishing sovereignty, whatever that means. And sovereignty, in this case, you know, is in some ways creating a organizational structure that conforms. I mean, it's a practical thing; it conforms to the way we structure the international context. Um, there, there is a kind of at least a minimalist structure to international politics, and it's based on this. Idea of national sovereignty, and that's strictly an idea. It's an, but it's a it's an idea that then um, that we we adhere to as a means of giving some sort of order to the relations between peoples across the world, and uh, you know, and, and it's it's got its problems. Certainly, the you know the fact you know that uh, a dictator can claim national sovereignty and then do all kinds of things that seem to be oppressive and, and terrifying and so forth in a country. Um, or that a country, you know, the United States can claim national sovereignty and then um, that becomes a basis maybe for attacks on other people who have uh, ostensibly violated this national sovereignty. I mean, but nonetheless, this is, this is the way we structure the international context and that's a kind of practical uh, task as to how, okay, what does it mean to conform to that and to function within that system and potentially what types of powers does the establishment of sovereignty offer that may be useful for someone who actually has the best interests of people within his country in mind? Um, you know, and, and that becomes maybe controversial in terms of what are the best interests and what should he do in, in pursuit of those best interests. But nonetheless, I, I do believe that he's motivated by best interests. And so sovereignty is something, and that might be something that then becomes useful. And then the other piece of it was to try and figure out okay, how do you, how do politics work Um, you know, okay to some extent if you have military muscle you can go and just sort of uh, scare people to death and thereby get them to do what you want them to do Um, and that uh, whether that's internally within your own country or whether that's externally you try to get other countries and peoples to do what you want them to do by, by, you know, declaring war and, and conflict and so forth. So there's that. There's economic power and economic influence, you, you know, which is a arguably it itself is kind of discursive. But nonetheless, you can use money and, and economic influence to influence others, you know, using sanctions and using these kinds of uh, tactics. You can influence others within the country by structuring the economy, by using patronage, by, you know, uh, tempting people with economic benefit if they do what you want them to do and so forth. So these are the types of powers that sovereigns have access to. Mm -hmm. Um, But the reality is, you know, in these post-colonial countries, you don't have a whole lot of military power and you don't have a whole lot of economic power. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, these are very, these aren't all that great. And in fact, to use both of those tactics have their costs right? I mean, uh, military power has its ethical costs for certain and it's going to wind up structuring politics as a competition for strength. In the same way, economic kind of things has their costs, potentially corruption and patronage and nepotism uh, and potentially other kinds of costs and and the reality is you're in a post-colonial country, you just don't have that much money to throw around. So then you know, so then you kind of realize, and, and this is what the theorists of discourse uh, would tell you, is that really all human relations are built around the way we shape the meaning of what we're doing, the way we decide what we're doing, what it means. right? And so the, the main way we have access to this is through language. And some of the main insights into this kind of process come through the study of language, because language is a symbol or a system of symbols. Uh, and and it's a very, it's a very, uh, complex and sophisticated system of symbols that is. And so by looking at that system of symbols, we learn how systems of symbols generally can function at their most sophisticated level. Um, but you know, political ritual, um, the way we dress, what we do, um, the ceremonies, uh, and other kinds of abstract symbols. I mean, all of these are s- also systems of symbols that we manipulate and 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 create meaning. And that meaning then communicates and, and kind of organizes us to understand our world in certain ways. So I wanted to pay attention to that kind of meaning-making as the core of political activity. Um, and, uh, and And because it also hopefully would allow me to... To see political activity in in complex ways, in multicultural ways, so that we're we're not just paying attention to what uh, are kind of the the structures of politics established by a colonial state, the structures of politics that we expect from a Western kind of point of view, um, but rather see maybe there's some deeper structures of, of politics that do conform to the way local people think. And, and this is actually a, a fairly well-established question in uh, in, Tanz- in Tanzanian studies, that people have realized that there is such a thing as what Stephen Fireman called peasant intellectuals. You know, that you have these peasants that are ostensibly, they're not educated and so forth, but they create the context in which politicians have to operate. That even the colonial state had to figure out ways to appeal to the the way local communities thought about things, to the their priorities and and their concerns, and uh, you know, and certainly that's all the more true in an independent polity where you have to appeal to people. You want you want to mobilize them. You want them to support your party. You want them to support your the new state. You want them to be involved and so forth. So I think very with his education, with his intelligence, with with his um, just sort of instinctive sense of 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 how to be a teacher, and like you know, he always he was happiest to be called muallim, which means teacher, you know, and, and that that was that was a core identity for him. Um, so he was a he's a he's a very sophisticated case study of someone who uh, manipulated meaning in significant ways uh, and successfully. Now, when I say he manipulated meaning. That means he was—he himself was also being manipulated, mm-hmm. right? And, that, and that's, right. that's one of the main insights of this kind of discursive study is that none of us are really in full control of the meaning that we communicate. We're not in full control of what we say because we have, whatever we say is constructed upon a language and, and pieces of symbols and meanings that have already been established in the society and are established through the interaction we have with other people. And moreover, because of that interaction... Um, we have to respond to what other people are interested in and they're going to understand us in their own ways, regardless of what we say. So we really have to be, it's, it's a, it's an interactive thing that, that's constant and, and always, always happening. So, um, so to look at your areas as someone who's engaged in that is a way to do a case study in, in sort of both of these themes, as someone who's trying to figure out how to establish sovereignty and someone who's engaged in very sophisticated ways uh, in in a context of discursive uh, competition. So, yeah, those become the themes. And I think, okay, ujama results from that and is itself a a significant and very, I think, interesting example of a discursive intervention. Someone creating new meanings for the the sake of the tasks that he has before him. uh, And to some extent, the way that people receive that term and appropriate that term and do new things with that term, we have a good example of kind of discourse. Um, so, but maybe if, I don't know if you want to ask another question, but what I would probably back up is then you mentioned chapter four. What comes before that is chapter three, right? right. Or, uh, yes. Chapter two is kind of. <laughs> yes. Uh, in the the natural three,
1: order of things, yeah.
0: But, uh, you know, and so both of those chapters are kind of established in the context in which Ujamaa, is going to appear as an intervention, uh, ostensibly meaning familyhood, uh, but also Nureri translating it as socialism. Um, And so this is a way for Nureri to insert socialism into the context, and he's been interested in that, as we said, for years. Um, And it's also a way for him to engage some local discourses. He picks up this term, ujama, from another kind of local intellectual who has been Throwing around this term as a way to think about African society. And so Nyerere appropriates this. He doesn't invent this term. Um, but certainly he gives new meaning to it. But what the context of when he creates this term, I think, in part, and this is, I think, important to address, is this is happening historically. This is happening, this is in a, in a, a chain of causation, right? And so, you know, there's all kinds of uh, battles with trying to you know, the the whole, the the kind of uh, accelerated uh, move towards independence that happens in Tanzania, in which Nurehi is fully engaged, and he's thinking about the implications of that, and this is coming very fast. How are we going to make sure we create a stable nation? How are we going to eliminate the potential of ethnic conflict? He's watching the conflict in in, uh, Kenya, what we know as Mao Mao, and that's kind of scary. I mean, whether you side with the rebels or you side with the state, colonial state, That level of conflict is scary, and and Tanzanians are Tanganyikans at the time are don't want that, and they're looking at Congo. Congo seemed to have uh, went to independence very quickly; seemed to be very hopeful. They had a very idealistic uh, young prime minister, Patrice Lumumba, who is then assassinated within months. The place explodes into all kinds of conflict, and the Cold War is is at work in Congo in some major ways, and this is scary. This is this is frightening to people um you know so they're they're now they're looking at processes that are happening in Tanganyika labor unions going on strike and their particular sets of interests uh, certain parts of the country which may be uh, mobilizing some ethnic loyalties because of they're not happy with the way you know what's happening or they want more power or something and it's not clear what's happening but there's a legitimate fear that okay maybe we have to keep an eye on this <laughs> um there are there's a, certainly a very strong element uh, of local society that feels that um Europeans uh, and also Asians which is to say mostly Indians and to some extent people of Arab descent but they call them Asians in this in the colonial context that they should not be citizens of a new nation that these are foreigners and should not be allowed in and and that's actually, that becomes a very Long standing political discourse that actually lasts well after. I mean, arguably, it's still at work. There's still this sense that Asians are foreigners, even though they've been there for generations. Uh, and Uri fights very hard against these ideas. He said, Look, if we start to uh, decide who's going to become a citizen based on race, we're no different than the South Africans. You know, with this is this, and, and once we start doing that, it's gonna. Then we're, we're gonna start asking ourselves, who is really African? Are we have 120 different ethnic groups? Are we gonna start to say, well, these ones are not really Africans; they shouldn't be allowed? So he sees this as if you once you start to divide people according to kind of identity politics, there's no end to that. That's just gonna continue, and and that's that's a huge thing he's fighting against, and uh, and he takes uh, you know some political, some political, some ethically questionable uh, political shortcuts to dealing with that. <laughs> um and and you know that's a whole other debate I mean to what extent does he become an authoritarian certainly he's clearly he's willing to use some fairly authoritarian tactics to eliminate this kind of uh, pe- politicians mobilizing based on race <coughs> so uh you know so he's he's struggling with all this and uh, and they do pass a preventative detention act, and he says, well look I mean, all countries more or less have a, some sort of act like this. And that he's, you know, he said several times, even at the UN, every government has the power to uh, intervene when it sees threats to, you know, the, the good of the whole people. You know, and so this is this later on more so becomes a, a, a big problem in some ways for Tanzanian historians and people evaluating Tanzania is that to what extent does Nyerere become a dictator? And there's no doubt that he does become a dictator um, at some point in time. And there's other politicians, even at the time, are saying they don't like the the kind of authoritarian turn that his government is taking. And they've seen it happen because they they look at Ghana. In Ghana, Kwame Nkrumah becomes, uh, very quickly, becomes very authoritarian in his operation. And they're they're comparing. They're saying, look, are we going to become like Ghana? A place where where opposition politicians are locked up? And so there's there's a there is some real push and pull there there's there's some real different a lot of politics going on and Nereri is not simply a good guy in this he's a politician and he's competing for power uh, you know but the, the causes he's representing I think are fairly defensible you know and so then I think there, that's a question which I don't I can't quite address maybe in this book I'm, I'm I'm showing why he makes these decisions I don't know if I can really make the kind of Evaluative judgment that okay was he right to jail so and so or you know send so and so to uh, to rural uh, isolation you know that's another question mm-hmm. but you know but this this is a question that all the the leaders of these post colonial countries are, are working with are struggling with is how to maintain authority how to establish a sovereign state that has that is the the authority within the territory and 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 then. To what extent are there trade-offs between democracy and other kinds of things? Can you have a democracy when most of the population is illiterate? Right. right? I mean, that, that's that's actually a very good question. I mean, yes, you could, but are people going to make good decisions? I mean, we, we, we ask those same questions here in the United States sometimes about right. our own democracy, right? right? You know, are people, are voters making good choices? And you have to get, and Nyeri would say, look, this is, it, we should have the right to make our choices. And even if we make bad choices, that's our right. You know, and he, he says that. On the other hand, he he's not quite ready to just let it be that simple. Right? Because he's afraid that if we make the wrong choices, we're gonna wind up with a civil war on our hands, we're gonna wind up with the United States, you know, putting a dictator or the Soviet Union's putting a dictator in place. We're gonna lose our sovereignty if we don't kind of nurture our sovereignty. And so these are just hard
1: questions. Yeah, and, and so that, right, so the whole the whole the whole second um, the whole part whole of part two um, is devoted to these questions of, of internal sovereignty, right? So um, you've just touched upon um, some of the concerns at independence that uh, opposition would undermine sovereignty, um, um, and actually lead to sort of open the way, I think, to a lot of uh, foreign intervention um, and ultimately the failure of the independence project. And um, I, I, I wonder if you'd um, say more about about those about those those fears uh, because they they really do um, run throughout throughout the throughout the book. Um, that that once certain doors are are open, there will be um, sort of a a loss
0: of all that's been gained. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, that is, I mean, very, he feels very deeply his sense of responsibility for this thing called Tanganyika, that then becomes tanganika. Um But, okay, so we talked about Ujamaa, and Ujamaa, then he cre- creates this as a means to bridge, as you said, you know, you know whatever, but the, the bridge, the local discourses with international discourses, and that's very useful. And he comes up with that very early, in fact, what's interesting for someone trying to aiming for sovereignty, within six weeks of becoming prime minister, he, he resigns the job and spends the rest of the year traveling around the country. And he, that, that's where he picks up and starts to elaborate this idea of ujama for what he calls a national ethic. He says we need a national ethic. So, I mean, this is, again, this is an intellectual insight. He sees the need for a rhetorical strategy, and then he takes the time to create one, right, and, and a very sophisticated one. Okay, so there's, there's that. That's one of the strategies. Uh, then he's got a number of other policies which are about establishing authority within this territory. What becomes villagization, which also becomes very controversial in the 1970s because of the forced nature of villagization, but that villagization starts almost immediately um, in part because it's kind of a World Bank uh, recommended strategy for modernizing the agricultural sector in part i argue is that it's there's a kind of local discourse at work here about land and the allocation of land mm-hmm. which is useful to the government to become the allocator in chief of land and so the people kind of have a sense that the land belongs to the government and that kind of sort of puts the puzzle pieces together for that that well clearly the government is the sovereign uh, in with using that discourse and so villagization kind of articulates that villagization then becomes useful as a kind of Kind of quasi military tactic in the sense that they create some villages along the southern border with Mozambique, where uh, Tanzania is starting to support rebel movements against the Portuguese. And they're worried, and they're worried for good reason. The Portuguese are uh, transgressing Tanganyikan boundaries and bombing Tanganyikan villages and so forth. And so they, they set up some kind of uh, garrison villages along the border. Um, and clearly, this was this was explicitly had a military aspect to it. And so I introduced that like villagization is kind of this multi-pronged strategy that's doing a lot <laughs> for them at that time. And that I think we have to be aware of that. And as we look at the way the villagization develops in later years is that it always was this kind of multi-pronged strategy. Arguably, this is something that like a scholar like a Sheila Bembe calls the aspect of kind of uh, now I'm forgetting the word that he uses, uh, but he kind of inventing as we go along. You know, trying to you know uh, adapting the new situations with new new things in a kind of haphazard way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, so that's that's another one. Now another thing he's that's just kind of getting going is is an idea for a national youth service kind of thing. Um, I mean, to some extent he's seen you know the Israelis have something like this, the U.S has Peace Corps and, and some of the, the the communist countries have youth wings for the party that are very influential. And of course, this has been something that's been around for a long time. So he sees a utility of something like that. And Arya argue that there's another local discourse that's very important with that, which is the idea of youth as a kind of militarized segment of traditional societies. And that you're kind of when you hit puberty or so, you're kind of initiated into being a young person and you kind of stay in that status until you get married and have children. And in that status, you have a kind of certain role in society. You're being prepared for adulthood. You're being prepared for authority. You're being prepared for these later kinds of things. And you are, to some extent, serving a kind of military role in many cases. So that's getting going, and that becomes a big part of the reconstruction of the army, which happens after a mutiny. And so I kind of, I opened the book with a, a few words about a mutiny that happened in 1964. And then there's a whole chapter kind of detailing the mutiny. Because here's one of these crises of internal sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Right? This, is, this was happening all over Africa. You have these army mutinies. They uh, kick out or kill the president and they put someone else in. And this was kind of a pattern in the 1960s and 70s in much of Africa. And so this was a real crisis. This was one where we can look at and see, okay, how did he... Managed, how did him and his government manage this? How did they reestablish the institutional authority of the government after this mutiny? Okay, the, the mutiny maybe it could have all you know it, whether it ever could have succeeded or not is maybe a kind of counterfactual question. But it was it was a pretty well pull back in order. And in the end, uh, he was sort of ashamed to admit that he had to call upon British troops uh, to come deal with this mutiny. Mm-hmm. Um, and I argue that he pulled it off and still kind of maintained at least a facade of sovereignty. That the government institutionally was never overthrown. It was in crisis, but it but it, its institutional structure was still in place and it still functioned, it still made decisions and it made the decision to invite the British to do this on their behalf because they needed help. Well, uh, sure. And so... You know, and I think some would argue that well, actually, that's a loss of sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, I would argue that they, you know, anyway. So
1: that's a separate argument. Well, I, I think that that's really interesting, um, in no small part because of what you said um, just a little while ago about this idea of meaning making as, as as the core of political activity and, mm-hmm. and of not you know being in full in full control and yet. Um, you know, in Chapter Six, which deals with the the nineteen sixty four Army mutiny, uh, which could have um, escalated to become like a full blown coup d'état, but didn't. Um, that seems to sort of uh, bear out a lot of uh, a lot of what um, what's been said in the in the book uh, up up to that point. Um,
0: yeah, well, I mean, just maybe the idea that using rhetorical strategies, he was able to at least establish that this military intervention by the British was uh, not a violation of sovereignty and to the extent that he can make that a convincing case for that, it becomes real, right? right? It it becomes real that in some sense the government continued to function and he was still its president and uh, you know, it's still in place. So yes, I think that there is a meaning making aspect to that, which was in competition with other meaning making strategies by American diplomats who kind of were perceiving Nyerere as being weak, and therefore maybe someone who they need to replace, if possible, to make sure they get someone in who's going to defend uh, American interests in East Africa better. Um, you know, there, there's you know, there's different kinds of discourses, and so Nyerere is very concerned not only to defeat the mutiny but to defeat the implications mm-hmm. right. the, uh, uh, of it. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. Cause at the end of, at the end of that same, uh, chapter, you sort of talk about the, essentially, know, uh, his takeaway from, from this episode is that things like this need to be prevented. because They undermine, um, government credibility. Um, and then he of course goes on to, uh, sort of build, um, uh, this nationalist military structure, um, right. based on what you, what I think it, it really, um, of interesting ways you talk about as um, a culturally defined category of youth, and that's in the in the, the chapter that follows, um, dedicated to the National Youth Service.
0: Um, yeah, so I mean, he uses the Youth Service as a kind of feeder for the military uh, as he's rebuilding this military and putting it under uh, African leadership. What we have to realize is the military was still had up until the mutiny, still had a British commander right. that they had kept in place because they thought, well, it's, it was sort of convenient. And I think he realizes we really need to we need to have an African command structure, and he finds some good people, uh, British trained, uh, in this case. But uh, you know, but but he also I think some of the trends of kind of authoritarian tactics, which were already in place, he kind of doubles down on those after the mutiny. Um, the mutiny, he it's pretty clear that he's that. It's pretty clear that most likely there were there were some labor union elements that supported the mutiny and potentially wanted to take advantage of the mutiny to turn it into into to replace the government with some of their own people, and so he he sees that as being a real threat to sovereignty and so forth. So I mean, we do have uh, one element that contributes to the more authoritarian kind of attitude of of this government is this mutiny, and I think that also has parallels in lots of other. African countries is that you have these kinds of threats and, and the result of them is to turn towards, is to become more authoritarian, you know, and, and that's uh, maybe unfortunate. Um, but that's not the only reason. I think there's other, I think, influences that, that push towards uh, the authoritarian sensibility too, um, as well. well but, the- I don't know, I guess maybe what we should do is turn to the that la- the external sovereignty
1: part. Yeah, sure. I, was, I was just like, I was uh, <laughs> you <laughs> you picked me to the post as they say um and uh so yeah so the, the the third part third and final part of the the book is devoted to um external sovereignty and uh the the first chapter in that third part is is um a realist uh, foreign policy and where you uh, discuss largely sort of the rules of foreign aid and diplomacy and um and and the way that uh Tanzania at this point is 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 maturing in its relationships i think with with other foreign nations and Walking a line between strategic allegiances, and again, not um, while trying not to open the door too too wide to foreign influence and intervention. Um, and yeah, so I'd, I'd love it if you if you um, say a bit um, about that. Yeah, well, I mean, so this is part of that whole sovereignty
0: uh, viewpoint. Is that you know the, the general kind of theory of sovereignty is that it has an internal X ex- element, which is to say, sovereignty defines the kind of legitimate government as the ultimate authority within territory. And then it has an external uh, component, which is to say that that government represents that territory in the international sphere. And so this is maybe a kind of simplistic division. And certainly there's overlap between both of those, but it's kind of a useful way to split up thematically some of the chapters. Um, and, uh, you know, and so, and I think what's, but what's maybe it, what it, what you lose a little bit in splitting up like that is, how coincident I mean how busy these guys are mm-hmm. I mean all of these things are happening internally and at the same time they have a, you know, a, a pretty activist foreign policy uh, mm-hmm. going on and so yeah I mean and you know and, and part of the reason I did want to have this kind of internal external view too is that the, the foreign policy part uh, becomes very very heavily dependent on external um, sources for information. Um, the observer uh, foreign diplomats and so forth who are reporting on what Tanzania is in what they're up to and what they're doing in different places and they're tracking this you know in, in fairly uh, detailed ways. Um, to some extent I use foreign observers even for the internal scene, but I really wanted to be careful to try to you know find those local discourses and, and, and make sure I'm seeing things that the foreign observers uh, maybe were missing. Um, and I, you know doing a lot of interviews with people um, who were involved in all these policies and so forth, and looking at Tanzanian archives as well. But the Tanzanian archives are, are pretty silent on foreign policy. There's just not much in the Tanzanian archives on foreign policy. And so, you know, you get that only, I mean, to some extent, you can find what's happening you know, through newspapers or whatever, maybe a little bit, and through interviews with people who were who were building that po- those uh, policies. But you are kind of dependent on, on these kind of foreign sources for it. And so this is kind of trying. I was trying to use sources from a lot of different places in order to get a, a kind of rounded view. But clearly, Tanzania embarks on this very robust foreign policy, uh, and Nueri sees that as fundamental. In fact, that's the heart in the heart of his policy, uh, kind of thinking on all of this is that um, Tanzania, or it becomes and we're going to find out why it becomes Tanzania, but it, this territory is not truly free until the rest of the continent. Is free of colonial rule, um, and 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 that becomes kind of the official kind of dogma of of the Tanzanian government, and uh, and more than more than most. I mean, I, I don't think we have a good set of comparisons yet, but Tanzania becomes certainly one of the most activist foreign policies in Africa, um, and is supporting all of these liberation movements, or called liberation movements uh, in Mozambique. In uh, northern and southern Rhodesia, which become Zambia and Zimbabwe, uh, in uh, he's supporting uh, eventually supporting rebels in the Congo after the overthrow of Patrice Lumumba. Later, he supports uh, policies oriented towards Angola, oriented towards South Africa. Very activist stuff, and it and it starts immediately. It starts almost with independence, and, uh, and in fact. It's pretty clear that Nyerere recruited uh, Eduardo Mondlane to uh, to head up a, uh, a liberation movement for Mozambique, in part because he was dissatisfied with the leadership of some of the groups that were operating initially, and uh, and he basically went out and found someone kind of like himself, someone with a local roots but a significant foreign education. Mondlane. Uh, I think he was a doctor. In fact, he was working at Syracuse University. He had worked for the UN. So he kind of finds someone kind of like himself to go uh, to, to do this. And basically says, "Look, we'll get you set up into our salon, and uh, we'll support you as best we can in uh, in in trying to develop a means of pushing the Portuguese out of Mozambique." Um, so that's 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 probably the biggest part of the policy. I mean, there's so many different components to what he's doing. Of course, he's also He's trying to get the U.S. Uh, support for this kind of policy. Uh, he writes some letters to uh, John Kennedy, who who he's met before. And Kennedy invites him for a state visit and seems to be fairly productive. But then uh, just later that year, Kennedy is assassinated, which uh, I think was a big setback in new mind for you know, a potential set of kind of partnership because he never develops the same kind of personal relationship with Johnson, after that. And of course, Johnson becomes completely distracted by Vietnam in any case, and it's kind of hard for him to pay any attention to Africa. Um, and he's also just trying to get foreign support for some of his local policies, foreign support for his budget, mm-hmm. for one thing. Uh, and that's part of the problem of a post-colony, is that the, the government had been sponsored and subsidized by a metropolitan government. And so you won't want, if you want to maintain that government and even expand that government, but you don't have the tax base to do it, you're kind of in a quandary. And so he realizes the threat to sovereignty of having to get aid from other countries. And yet there's no way or he doesn't see any good way around it. So uh, in, he's very anxious to build up the economy of Tanzania. And he's hoping some strategic investment from foreign sources in the Tanzanian economy will uh, maybe create an economy with, that's strong enough to support the government that he wants. He never really succeeds in that. Um, for a lot of different reasons, but that's another issue of what he's trying to wrestle with in terms of uh, foreign policy. I mean, I think the big foreign, the big foreign policy things that I then deal with is the whole uh, what happens with Zanzibar. Right.
1: Um,
0: so you have you have this territory of Tanganyika.
1: This and this, is, is, and this uh, by the way, is, is uh, the the sort of chapters nine and ten, the final chapters of the of the book uh, deal with what I think you're about to say. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah
0: so, I mean, here you have uh, Tanganyika as a territory. It's a British territory. Uh, Zanzibar um, initially is not yet independent. It's still also under British rule, but the British are kind of ruling through uh, a sultan who uh, is ostensibly the sultan of... had You know, uh, this sultan's family had been in place for several generations since the 1800s, and they're originally from Oman, and it's a kind of racialized system whereby you have and a, a group of people who identify themselves as Arab in some way who are the elite and had generally been running a kind of clove plantation using slave labor for much of the 1800s. Slavery was abolished, but there was still significant legacy of that kind of of basically a racial prejudice that was the foundation of that slavery system in place. And there's a lot of resentment around that. Some, some increasingly uh, hot, uh, verging on violent politics and political rhetoric in the 1950s in zanzibar as as people there are thinking about what's can you know can not only can we be independent but can we overturn uh the kind of racialized structure of this society and then that's that's getting that's that's heating up in significant ways um Tanganyika becomes independent uh and is looking at Zanzibar and wondering, you know, what's going to happen there. Um, the British then put Zanzibar on track to become independent. And indeed, it, it does become independent at the end of 1963 um, under a parliamentary government that's dominated by a party associated with the, the Sultan. Um, and so people aren't fully happy with that. And within a few weeks, there's a revolution, um, which we wouldn't want to go into the details of that revolution right now, but it's... A little complicated, several different factions at work. It gets a little out of hand, um, and it gets violent. Uh, There's clearly some massacres verging with a kind of at least genocidal intent on the part of uh, some kind of groups that would, I guess, see themselves as African against uh, the Arab elite. Um, And there's a lot of killings. Uh, To some extent, there's killings going both ways. But it's it's one of those moments where the exact kind of fears that Nyerere has about violence happening in Congo and elsewhere that, geez, I mean, this is scary. Um, they pretty quickly through uh, political relationships that had already been established uh, establish a more stable government, put an end to those massacres and I think as much as people in Zanzibar by and large really resent the what on the Abed Karume who became the president in Zanzibar It's clear that when Kurume came back and they kind of got him established as the figure of authority there, he did put an end to the massacres and he did kind of embark on starting to try to calm things down and and construct a government that, uh, although it had a lot of racial resentments built into it, was not going to be a racially based government. Um, Now, the Americans uh, see Zanzibar as a potential... Uh, asset, strategic asset in the kind of Cold War uh, world where every country had a kind of value as an asset. Every territory had a value as an asset. Zanzibar as an asset, not so much for it what it could produce, but its location. That it was this little, these two little islands off the coast of East Africa. They provided a good "quote unquote" listening post. Um, they provided kind of a, uh, a, a point of access to the Indian Ocean. Um, they, were, they were a strategic asset um, and the Soviets maybe saw the same thing so uh, with this revolution which is, has some nominally socialist elements built into it uh, as part of the, some of the factions there's a competition for Zanzibar there's a worry that Zanzibar is going to become communist and if Zanzibar becomes communist then they're going to basically use that to take over Tanganyika, Tanganyika all of Africa will become communist right? the domino theory will be fully at work Uh, And so uh, the U.S. becomes very involved in uh, looking at and trying to manipulate, potentially, it would seem, planning for some uh, interventions that never happen. Uh, The Soviets, likewise, become very involved in Zanzibari politics. And Uriah is watching this and is worried that this is just going to become a kind of, uh, you know, another Cold War battlefield or one of the Cold War powers is going to take this over. So in a kind of hasty way they negotiate a union between Zanzibar and, and Tanganyika, which becomes Tanzania. Um, and I think what I try to do is just show, here's, here's the context in which this is happening politically. This is why it happens so quickly. This is why it's a little bit drawn up a little bit too quickly. And, you know, this is part of the reason why Zanzibar, the relationship of Zanzibar to the mainland of, of what is now Tanzania is still very contested. Yeah.
1: And, Uh, and, and to that point, um, uh, uh, in our sort of uh, protracted run-up to uh, this conversation, um, we sort of talked about um, a, a referendum on a, um, a new draft constitution, um, and I, I wonder if you would sort of talk about that um, sort of initial context and how it how it relates to what's going on now. <laughs> I mean, well, this is—I mean, that's what for a historian
0: this is sort of interesting, right? You have, you have that initial context; it's it's kind of thrown together a bit hastily. Part of what happens, though, is that then what continues is that the the people, the the, the people allied with the the former sultan government um, continue to kind of, it would seem, mobilize or try to get resources to overthrow the revolutionary government of Zanzibar. And in doing so, they introduce some rhetoric uh, about, you know, who's in charge and who should be in charge and so forth and and, uh, why the current government should not be in charge. And, you know, some of the same politics of identity take root and continue. And, in fact, I think after Tanzania emerges from being a one-party state for a long time and becomes a multi-party state, some of those rhetorical strategies still have energy, are still working. And and so then they, uh, they, they kind of reconstruct those in more recent years, trying to reconstruct a sense of Zanzibari autonomy. And so here's a whole sovereignty question is that Zanzibar retains some sovereignty, but not total sovereignty. It's under the sovereignty of Tanzania, but it has a kind of separate government. So it's it's a weird. It's like a it's it's neither here nor there when it comes to sovereignty. So sovereignty is still a useful lens for figuring out what the, what's happening with Zanzibar. Um, so that that continues uh, now. Uh, I mean, there is a lot of so there's a lot of politics that emerge from that about Zanzibari autonomy, and potential Zanzibari independence. There are some groups uh, pushing for Zanzibari sovereignty, for total independence. There are some groups pushing for more autonomy to control their own issues. Part of, the, part of what's emerged more recently is that there are some religious politics at work here that uh, want Zanzibar to be a Muslim society in a way that the mainland Tanzania can never be because it's just too diverse. It's, there's too many religions and too many people of too many different religions to ever be. just politics at work there. Um, there's some influence of the kind of extremist politics that's floating around in the world today, and then the fear of extremist politics, which is just as much a uh, part of that. Um, so there was a, a couple years ago, they put together a commission to revisit the question of the relationship of the Zanzibari government to the mainland government. Um, and they uh, came out with a proposal for there to be three governments, uh, which is to say a government of Tanzania, a government of mainland... Tanzania, which is to say the old Tanganyika, and a government of Zanzibar. Currently, it's kind of an awkward situation where there's a government of Tanzania and there's a government of Zanzibar, but no government for the mainland. Like, it doesn't even quite make sense, but I think part of the reason it's held is because it didn't make sense. <laughs> and uh, But the problem is, uh, so that was their proposal, and a lot of people, that was what they heard from the people. People were saying that, so they said, as the commission, they said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to try and take what people are saying. We're going to try and, and, then you know, it was a very prominent commission led by a former chief justice of the Supreme Court. Very, you know, well, they did a nice job. That then went into a, a, a constitutional assembly, which was, of course, dominated by the ruling party, and it got totally changed. Uh, the ruling party kind of took it over, much to the chagrin of the people on the commission, um, and they basically changed it completely to be back to the old two-government system. Um, but then, this clearly was going to be so unpopular that, for one, they were going to have a referendum on it in April, and that got quietly and indefinitely postponed. <laughs> so they, ne- they never took up that cause. It, and then it would seem that uh, sort of the complicated pol- politics right now of who's going to become the next president, um, in part because of and because of his resignation and, and kind of what was established under him, Tanzania ha- does have a regular exchange of uh, new, new presidents. <laughs> Uh, new politicians, even though the ruling one ruling party has remained in power the whole time. And and there are some opposition parties. They're coming increasingly strong. It would seem that the ruling party decided that they didn't want one of their biggest politicians to become president because he was seen as corrupt, and so they did not nominate him for president. He got upset, apparently, and then went and joined one of the opposition parties, which had always said he was corrupt, too, but now all of a sudden they're accepting him, (laughs) apparently, because they think this is a good way to get his followers. And it probably is a good way to get his followers. And it's a, you know, it's questionable what it'll do to their party. But it would seem that one of the questions they asked of him was, will you revisit the constitution and uh, look back to the three government system? And the rumor is that he has said yes. And that's part of the reason they accepted him. So these, that issue is still very central to Tanzanian politics. And uh, I think it's important probably for Tanzanians, to, to make sure they, they can look at that issue outside of a kind of narrow set of identity politics and a kind of states' rights sort of idea that, you know, well, we need to be able to do our own thing. And I, I see the importance of that. And, and some would argue that Zanzibar's presence in the Tanzanian state is really a type of colonialism, that basically Tanganyika took over Zanzibar and colonized it. That's one view. Others would say that, no, actually, they'd always been kind of linked at the hip, and this is actually a good thing. Uh, And these are two kind of interpretively legitimate views. The key is, I think, to look at the bigger picture and say, look, this is not just about today. This is not just about who's going to be in charge of potential gas, uh, natural gas resources in the Indian Ocean. Uh, But, you know, there's a historical context to why this happened the way it did and that actually might have some clues as to the bigger strategic goals here and why it'd be worth being very thoughtful about how to renegotiate that relationship. And I think I think the kind of intelligentsia in Tanzania are quite aware of that and uh and uh I don't take this stuff lightly. So hopefully I can my book will give a little bit of food for thought for that bigger conversation.
1: Absolutely. Um as will um as well, the at least one of the projects that you that you currently have underway, um, uh, which I was hoping you would uh, sort of tell us um, tell us a bit about. You're uh, your heading to Tanzania fairly soon. Uh,
0: yeah, so I'll be heading to Tanzania as a Fulbright uh, scholarship and. Um, what I'd like to do is spend some time. I'd like to do a kind of sequel to this book, uh, looking at the next kind of period. And a lot of the stuff in the next period have been looked at pretty intensively, villagization, economic policy and so forth. But I want to do the same thing where I really hit the archives hard and so forth and, and look at foreign and local archives and try to figure out who's, why things why the people are doing what they're doing and, you know, and so forth. But I want, also want to make sure I maintain this interest in, in discursive strategy, maintain an interest in the way that meaning is constructed uh, at all these different levels. And so, one of the things I want to be doing when I go in this particular trip is actually I want to spend some time talking to people about uh, the the bigger topic of what I'm thinking of as economic ethics. Like, you know, economics works the way it does, but people kind of people try to use policy to shape economics according to what they see as ethical within economics. So, you know, so like communism and capitalism maybe have different sets of economic ethics as to what's appropriate and what policy should do to to limit and control and co-opt and take advantage of the power of economic activity. Uh, And one insight, I think one gateway into thinking about that, I think, is looking at village level kind of relationships. And one thing I'm thinking is that when I was at Tumani University, and it was also a, there was a theological college built into that. There were a lot of like theses and dissertations on theology. And a lot of what local pastors deal with is witchcraft. I mean, I asked a local a guy one time, he's like, yeah, basically marriage problems and witchcraft. That's mainly what, what I deal with at the, at the congregational level. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I, I think, that, okay, there is some good work on witchcraft. Uh, Maya Green is someone I'm looking very closely at with, uh, with Tanzania, uh, currently. um, Who's looked at the confluence of religion and witchcraft and so forth but I think that they're and just maybe trying to pick look at some of the witchcraft and, and and just asking about that and interviewing people about that and trying to that might be at least a gateway into a conversation about how economics works what happens when one person uh, gains economic advantage over another what happens when one person seems to to, to thrive in a certain economic environment and, and someone else does not? And how this kind of thinking about what's ethical and what's not may have influenced the way policy was formulated, the way policy was received, the way it was implemented. And so I just want to have a, a kind of sense of a kind of the underlying discourse at work in what I think is going to be a major theme of the next chapter of Tanzanian history, which, is, which will be economic policy. Because Ujamaa then is reformulated as a very radical socialist policy in the mid-60s and its pursued through the 70s. And I think that's going to be a big theme. I also hope to be able to continue to deal with the uh, foreign policy and, and you know, kind of the same thing that might all get to be a little too unwieldy. So we'll see how it all pans out. But my kind of narrow project for the next year is to try and get a handle on um, local discourses about uh, economics that may not look like they're about economics at first glance. But uh, hopefully I can show that there's some links between some local discourses of uh, magic and whatever all else and about social relationships and, uh, and what comes to be the formulation and implementation of uh, economic policy.
1: Well, that, that sounds, that sounds great. And I'm um, really, really looking forward to hearing um, more about that. And I have uh, enjoyed uh, both this conversation and the, the book immensely. And so I, I really want to thank you for coming on um, and speaking with me.
0: Well thank you for your time uh to put this together and this is a very good conversation.
1: Yeah, well, um yeah, so so everyone, uh you've had the uh pleasure of listening to Professor Paul Bjork, who's um currently professor at of history of history, African history at Texas Tech University, and he is the author of Building a Peaceful Nation, uh Julius Nyerere, and the Establishment of Sovereignty in Tanzania nineteen sixty 1960 to nineteen sixty four. And it is published by the University of Rochester Press. So thanks, everyone, for listening to the African Studies Podcast, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you.